Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's edition of the Geraldine Jameson interview. Now my guest on today's program is a man who has made an outstanding contribution to Manx life. His honour, John William Corran, CBE-TH. A former first teamster, Jack Corran is an honorary life member of the Isle of Man Law Society, a past president of the Isle of Man Postgraduate Medical Centre, and an honorary member of the Isle of Man Medical Society. Born in Douglas in 1932, Jack was educated at Fairfield and Murray's Road schools before winning a scholarship to King William's College at the tender age of 11. It was there that he set out on the path to becoming a lawyer and he was called to the Manx Bar in 1954. As his career progressed, Jack was appointed Attorney General in 1974, Second Deemster in 1980, and went on to serve as First Deemster from 1988, a position he held for a decade. Awarded the CBE in 1995 in recognition of his years of public service, three years later in 1998, he was honoured with the freedom of the Borough of Douglas. In recent years, Jack, along with his wife Pat, who has an OBE, has become known for his selfless commitment to many charitable causes. Some of those charities include the Buxton Music Trust, Soldiers, Sailors and Airmen's Families Association, the Manx Asthma Association, Crossroads Caring for Carers, the Alcohol Advisory Service, and Cruise Bereavement Care. But it is for his close association for many years with the Manx Blind Welfare Society and the Manx Workshop for the Disabled that he is perhaps most well known. And on July the 5th this year, Jack received a standing ovation from the members of Tinwald when he was awarded the Tinwald Honour, one of the highest accolades that can be bestowed in the Isle of Man. In recommending my guest today for the Tinwald Honour, member of the Legislative Council Eddie Lowey described Jack Corran as a national treasure, a sentiment all of us here on the Isle of Man would no doubt echo. Well, Jack Corran, CBE, TH, a very warm welcome indeed to the programme today. You grew up in the Isle of Man during the war years. It must have been a very different place back then to the one we know today. Tough times indeed? Oh yes, indeed. Yes, of course I was at school during the war years at King William's and um, of course we were very close to the airport and it was a military airport during the war. We had the Barracuda planes landing there and of course we had to be very careful with our lighting so we had to have blackouts in the school at night and of course we were subject to rationing during the war but uh, we managed very well. But of course it wasn't possible to uh, to uh, get off the island during those days. We weren't able to travel very far. So you just had to look at the world literally 
from a, a rosy, slightly rosy ball, really. You know, was, uh, I often think here we are, it's, it's as if someone's thrown the ball into the middle of the Irish Sea. But you clearly were showing academic prowess, really, from a young age. Did you always know it was a career in the legal profession that you wanted to pursue? Well, not really. I think we had a careers interview at school and uh, the careers man asked me what I was going to do and I said I, I thought I'd be a journalist. And he said, are you very good at English? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, you'll be no use then as a journalist. So uh, <laughs> uh, I was then moved towards being articled as a lawyer and I was articled in uh, 1949 in Athol Street to the late Mr. Eric Farger in Dickinson, Cruikshank and Co. And of course, in those days, one served five years articles before qualifying for the bar. So I was five years practicing what was going to be my ultimately my profession. And that was before, of course, being appointed uh, Attorney General. Oh, yes. Well, I was in practice from 1950, 1954 right through until 1974. I was 20 years practicing as an advocate in Athol Street. And then in 1974, I became Attorney General. You must have thought you'd reached the pinnacle at that stage, did you? Yes, that was very, very, uh, I was very honoured to be appointed, except that as soon as I was appointed, I was told that I would spend my time as Attorney General defending the Isle of Man against the abolition of the Birch Laws. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Well, we'll come to that in just a moment, because being appointed Attorney General grabs me a little here with the fact that an ex-officio member of, of the Legislative Council, well, that threw you into the political arena. Now, was that a bit of a shock to the system? Well, it was. I, I became, a, obviously, became a member of Tinwald, but the law, and when I became a member of Tinwald in 1974, um, one of the Deemsters, the, the, um, the second Deemster, was still actually a member of the Legislative Council. Uh, the first Deemster's post had been abolished from the Legislative Council a bit earlier, but the second Deemster at that time was Deemster Eason. Was, I sat with him in Tinwald and he was still pra practicing as a Deemster. Shortly after that, the second deemster was cut from the Legislative Council um, and uh, my remaining time there as Attorney General. And did the uh, younger people, you know, coming up behind you really, did they seek advice from you at that stage? Uh, well, I think so. I think um, those who were younger than I was, and some of them were my students, of course, and some of them, I'm glad to say, have, have, been, have done very well in, uh, in their careers since then. Weren't they lucky to have you <laughs> steering the way for them, Jack? Well, during your time in that role, you represented the Isle of Man, uh, probably one of the most high-profile cases involving the island at the European Court of Human Rights Court in Strasbourg, fighting the island's case for retaining the birch. Yes. Now, tell us about that experience. There must have been a lot of pressure on your shoulders at that time. Yes, there was. Well, of course, initially there was a, um, a, a debate in Tinwald about it. And I had, as Attorney General, I had to um, declare myself um, in favour of um, travelling to the European Court and uh, fighting to retain the birch because it was a very, there were very strong feelings in the Isle of Man. In fact, there were demonstrations. 
And um, in the Tinwell debate, the motion was carried. Uh, I think there was just one one vote against. And uh, I had to go to Strasbourg twice. The first time was the European Commission of Human Rights. And of course, I was traveling as part of a UK team because the Isle of Man, we were part of the UK for the purposes of the European Convention on Human Rights. And when I traveled there, of course, the people I was with told me quite um, definitely that they were totally against what I was what I was doing because Her Majesty's government were totally against the retention of corporal punishment in the Isle of Man. And um, but when I got there, they said, "Well, this man is the Attorney General from the Isle of Man. And we're allowing him to um, address you." And so I was allowed to address the European Commission. And then eventually we lost that by six votes to one. The one who voted for us was the Irish Republic of Ireland representative. The UK representative voted against us. Um, and then we were sent up to the European Court of Human Rights. And the following year, I traveled again to Strasbourg and appeared in the European Court, this time again part of a UK deputation, uh, which was led this time by Louis Blom Cooper who was that time was chairman of the Howard Lee for penal reform. So as soon as I met him for the first time, he said, you realize I'm totally opposed to what you're doing. And um, I said, well, I realize that. But again, I was allowed to, um, I was allowed to um, uh, address the European court uh, and put the case for the Isle of Man, which I did. Um, and then we returned to uh, home and uh, we got quite a good press. Uh, quite a good national press uh, for our efforts um, but of course we were on a, a loser really all the way through and on that occasion we lost again 6-1 but this time the English judge voted for us and all the other judges <laughs> voted against us. <laughs> it was a bit like a, a seesaw, there's yeah. a, a, a child's roundabout. Yes, yeah. Well the punishment was abolished, was that the right decision for the island's international? reputation. Well, I think so, yes, yes, I think that's so. Uh, Had to be, really. Mm, yeah. Well, you served as second Deemster and first Deemster over an 18-year period. How did the Isle of Man legal system change over that time? Well, I think it was more the, um, I think it was more the financial side that changed. Um, I mean, for example, the Banking, the banking Act, we were, the, we were one of the first jurisdictions to have a Banking Act and uh, we introduced the Banking Act um, in the 1970s and then uh, of course we had the uh, crash of the Savings and Investment Bank which was in 1982 and that caused a lot of problems for the Isle of Man and um, at that time um, it was decided to, to um, bring somebody in to sort financial matters out and uh, a man was seconded from the Bank of England, Mr. Jim Noakes, who's, who stayed happily and set up the Financial Supervision Commission, uh, is now retired and, and uh, living in the island. And uh, he, he built up the Financial Supervision Commission over those years following 1982, when we really had to put our house in order. So we were ready then, in, in latter years, when all the new financial um, people came to the island banks, insurance companies, and so on. It really was a whole different ball game here then, wasn't it? Was, it? yes. Yeah. So the work of the, particularly between 88 and 98, when I was first Deemster, the work had changed uh, considerably during that period. 
I mean, you felt in the early days, I felt I was dealing with cases worth a few hundred pounds, and I finished up dealing with cases worth a few million pounds by the, by the end of the 1990s. It, it really is amazing, mm. looking back on it. Now, you narrowly missed out on becoming the first Manx-born Lieutenant Governor for the island. The post was given to Air Marshal Ian McFadden, but do you think... 12 years on, the time is now right for a Manxman to take the role. Well, at the time, it was, it was the year 2000 when this occurred, and I was actually um, backed uh, by Timble members to apply for the post. Uh, I, I wouldn't have applied but for that. And um, I was interviewed for the post at the Home Office uh, with the other shortlisted candidates. Um, and eventually, I understand in the end, there were two candidates uh, chosen of which I was one which so I was very honored to be to be that one but as you said the job went to Air Marshal McFadden when he first came uh, he was very unpopular because local people had wanted to, the job to come to me but he and his wife um, soon became very popular they were very nice people they worked hard uh, they worked very hard and Pat and I became great friends with them and we still are friends and um, so that's now all water under the bridge. And then since then, of course, we've had um, uh, the Haddocks, and now we've got um, the, the latest governor, Adam Wood. So it's quite, it's quite obvious that as far as the British government are concerned, they wish to have their man in the island during his period of office. Uh, and of course, in the last 20, 30 years, numerous tasks of the governor have been transferred to officials in the island. In fact, even when I was Attorney General, we, we spent our time uh, passing a bill um, which transferred the governor's powers to, to um, local uh, ministries or local people and so on. Had I been appointed, then I would have been um, furthering that, really, and making sure that powers were transferred to the local people, leaving the governor, really, with um, just the executive powers of um, crown position. On the subject of governors, you did effectively hold the role at one point, didn't you? Yes, that was a very sad occasion. This was in 1995, at the end of the term of office of Sir Lawrence Jones. Um, Sir Lawrence and I had become great friends over the five-year period, and in the last month um, in August, before he was leaving in September, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and uh, he kept it to himself quite a lot and he carried out his farewell duties in August and early September. However, in early September, before he left the island, but very near the time that he was due to leave, um, he died very suddenly and unexpectedly during the night. Of course, during the following week, um, arrangements had to be made for the funeral, uh, and the funeral was held in the Isle of Man at St George's, and uh, Lady Jones asked me whether I would... Um, pay the tribute to him at the funeral, uh, which I said I would do because I'd got on very well with him. However, two or three days later, I had word from the Home Office that um, I was to represent the Queen at the funeral. And of course, as you know, the Queen doesn't attend funerals. Uh, she's always represented and her representative is not allowed to speak at funerals. So I was told that as I was the Queen's representative at the funeral, I wouldn't be able to, to speak. So, um, of course, I'd promised Lady Jones that I would do the tribute. However, 
uh, by some magic within the following couple of days before the funeral, something was sorted out and I was told that word had come from the Home Office that I could in fact pay tribute to the late Sir Lawrence Jones, which I did at St George's Church at his funeral. Well, away from the legal profession, your commitment to charitable causes in the island is renowned, and the number of charities you've been associated with speaks volumes about your spirit of generosity when it comes to raising the profile of charities. Did you see that as a duty, to devote your time to the community, or is it something you get pleasure from? Oh, it's something I get pleasure from, really. I, I'm uh, very much a Manxman, and uh, I very much enjoy the company of the local people, and I suppose I'm a people's person, and um, so I, I've had a great deal of pleasure from all the things that I've been involved in. It hasn't been a hard job at all. Well, now, one of the charities yourself, along with your good wife, Pat, have been synonymous with for a number of years is, of course, the Manx Blind Welfare Society. What drew you to that particular cause, Jack? Well, we, we, we were, the Manx Blind Welfare started a news service for the blind um, in um, early 1970s. And um, we were newsreaders, we were asked to be newsreaders. So Pat and I were newsreaders. And we used to read the news um, every other week. Um, the, the, the local newspaper for the visually impaired. Uh, and then uh, Deemster Moore was the chairman of the Manx Blind Welfare and he, he decided to retire. He had retired as Deemster and then he decided to retire. So he suggested that I might, um, might take over. So um, I say we were already involved with the society to a small extent and so I agreed to take over. So I was appointed um, chairman in 1980 and I then remained as chairman until 2012. So that was 32 years, in fact, altogether. Well, the Manx public are known for their generosity when it comes to supporting local charities. But in the current financial climate, and with the pressures on government in particular, demand for the services offered by the third sector is likely to increase significantly. And surely it's more important than ever for the public to keep supporting these worthy causes. Yes, and particularly Manx Blind Welfare, because I have to say that uh, Manx Blind Welfare does not receive any um, any input from the Isle of Man government. Uh, it's quite independent and self-supporting. Was that deliberate? Uh, well, it, it's, it's just that over the years, um, we've been a very thrifty society. And when we've been lucky enough to have legacies left to us, we've... Um, Retain, hopefully retained as much of the capital as possible. Um, and then we were able to build our new premises in 2000, well, they were opened in 2003. Um, and we, we, we had uh, quite a big grant there from uh, various um, private trusts and so on, uh, as well as fundraising. And in fact, that building is now, uh, was built, it cost about one and a half million pounds, but all of that money was paid. Uh, we don't owe anything on it. We were graciously given the land by the Isle of Man government, the land upon which it's built. But apart from that, we didn't receive anything from the government and we don't receive anything from the government now. And so we've, we've managed to, um, to, uh, to run the society from the new premises over the last nine years. Um, and we've expanded our services there considerably. We have over 500 visually impaired people who we uh, 
care for in one way or another. And we have something like 200 volunteers uh, as well as our staff. We have an excellent staff there. And so uh, it's really all been a very a great success story. Well, in recognition of your many years of public service and dedication to the Manx community, you were awarded the CBE and following on from that, made a freeman of the borough of Douglas. Well, what did it feel like to be made an honorary freeman of your hometown? Oh, that was a great honour, yes, because I'd always had a lot to do with the Douglas Corporation because my old firm, Dickinson, Cruikshank & Co., had always been, from time immemorial, uh, advocates for the Douglas Corporation. So I had great contact with them from the time I started, started work in Dickinson, Cruikshanks, really. And then I became their advocate in later years. And um, in fact, at the centenary of the Douglas Corporation in 1996, I think it was, they had the centenary dinner and they asked me to um, propose the toast to the Douglas Corporation in, uh, for their centenary year. So I really had a lot of um, contact with the corporation over the years. So I'm very happy and I was very pleased to become a freeman of Douglas. At the July open-air tinwell ceremony, you were presented with the highest accolade that can be bestowed by the court, the Tinwell to Honour, and received rapturous applause from the island's politicians in the Royal Chapel. Now, that must have been a very proud moment. Yes, it was. The amount of respect and admiration all of the members displayed for you. Yes, it was a great, great honour. I'm very, very, very pleased about it. And um, it was a lovely, a lovely day. Everybody was very kind. And um, Did you sh shed a tear? <laughs> well, I don't... It must have been hard. It was, yes, yes. It was lovely. Mm. Well, Jack Corrin, CBE, TH, it has been both an honour and a pleasure to have you join me on this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Thank you indeed. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.